You may be seated. Did Jesus come so that we would feel guilty? It seems like an absurd question when you hear it asked that way. But when you think about the way so many of us live and the way so many of us think and the way perception even is of the church and of Christianity, the question is actually quite pointed and quite, quite, quite fair. Is the reason that Jesus came and the reason that Jesus died and the reason that Jesus was resurrected and the reason that Jesus saved us was that for the purpose of bringing guilt into our lives because we never measure up. Because I would imagine that many of you are struggling with this in your heart. Many of you are struggling with the fact that in your heart you feel like you can't please God. You can't pray enough. You can't serve enough. You can't give enough. You can't go enough. You can't do enough. You can't think enough. You can't read enough. You can't teach enough. No matter what you do, you're left feeling guilty. And the truth of the matter is, is it's just crushing your soul. Any joy that would be available to you in Christ is gone. Any peace that's available to you in Christ is gone. Any security available to you in Christ is gone. Because you live in this perpetual state of guilt. Is this why Jesus came? Is this why Jesus died? Is this why Jesus was resurrected from the dead? This morning we're going to see a conversation between Jesus and a group of people that have a PhD in guilt. People that know guilt as well as any Baptist, any fundamentalist that you've ever met in your life. The Pharisees. And I'm hopeful that we will see in this conversation some realities that are perhaps present in our own lives that we can offer over to the Lord and be delivered from. So, if you have your Bibles, if you would open them with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. It's going to be kind of a a different couple of weeks, So, uh, and, and all the staff is immediately laughing because this only bothers me. None of you would have even noticed it. But we're, not going to, we're going to start chapter 12 this week and next week, but we're not going to finish it before we move on for a little while. And uh, like my personality type just can't handle that. Like I'm just melting down up here. Um, so we're going to take two weeks to start Matthew chapter 12, and then we're going to do a six-week series from Mother's Day to Father's Day uh, on the family from the book of Proverbs called The God-Fearing Family. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to walk through that together, and then we're going to come back to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to finish it. And so the whole time we're through that Proverbs series, you just need to pray for me, because I'm going to be like anxious and tense, because we didn't finish Matthew chapter 12. So let's start that this week together, and if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. Matthew chapter 12, we'll read the first 14 verses this morning. God's word says... At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. 
He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Oh, how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him on how to destroy him. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. When we come to Matthew chapter 12, a shift is taking place in the ministry of Jesus. Up until Matthew 12, we have seen a number of different reactions to Jesus' ministry, ranging from excitement and his fame spreading and crowds gathering to, to kind of apathy and indifference. We talked a lot about that a couple of weeks ago to just criticism, you know. But up until this point in Jesus' ministry, he had not faced a lot of just overt hostility until we get to chapter 12. In chapter 12, the tone of Jesus' ministry begins to shift. In fact, I think we can see Matthew chapter 12 as being a fulfillment of what Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 10. Remember, Jesus had said that persecution was coming. Suffering was coming. I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves. Hard days are ahead. But when we get to Matthew chapter 12, hard days have arrived. You can read in verse 14 where it even says that from this day forward, they begin to conspire against him, aiming to kill him. So Matthew chapter 12 is in the shadow of the cross. Matthew chapter 12 is, is the, the cross is becoming even more clear in the ministry of Jesus and in the pathway of Jesus and in the, the journey of Jesus. Now the charge that's leveled against Jesus and his disciples on this day is a serious one. Now, I know that it says that they only talk about the disciples, but you have to understand that it was implied in Jesus' day that if you spoke negatively about the disciples, if you criticized something that they were doing as being wrong, implied within that, assumed within that, was that you were saying that their teacher was wrong, that their rabbi was wrong. And so when the, when the Pharisees come and they're leveling this charge against the disciples, they are leveling this charge against Jesus himself. And the charge is that they are working on the Sabbath. The charge is not theft. 
You know, you see them walking through these fields, you know, like the way they didn't have like I-20, like back, there, back in, uh, in Galilee. Like you couldn't just jump on the four lane and head down to, to the beach for a little while. Like in Jesus' day, there were these, these wide paths and they kind of would wind through the countryside and they would wind through the fields. And so God had even instructed his people that they would leave so much of their crops so that the sojourners or the passersby would have something to eat if they were weary from their journey or if they, they didn't have enough food and they were famished. And so when we see the disciples eating from the field, the, the, the accusation here is not one of theft. The accusation here is one that is far greater than that. It is working on the Sabbath. It is being in violation of the fourth commandment. And understand that the punishment, the consequence in Jesus' day for violating the fourth commandment, violating the Sabbath, was death. Execution. You were to be executed if you worked on the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was important to the Jews, not just because of what their religion was, but because of their culture. It marked them as a culture. It set them aside as a culture in a, in a way that is akin to, to circumcision. All the other nations knew that, that Israel was different because they were set aside by this day of rest. They were set aside by this day that was, that was aimed to kind of recalibrate and refocus and, and worship the Lord and honor the Lord. And So they wouldn't fight in a war. They wouldn't reap in their fields. They wouldn't take care of anything. They would just, they would just exist and, and sit and worship and contemplate the Lord and read the scriptures and enjoy the good gifts that the Lord was to give them. Or at least this was the intention. And so it was marked. They took it so seriously that, in fact, when uh, the Roman gen general Pompey invaded Jerusalem in, in BC 63, 63 years before Jesus, they refused to fight on the Sabbath. Now, this was allowed within the Sabbath. They constrained themselves not to fight against Pompey on the Sabbath because they thought it was better to be slaughtered and remembered as people of the Sabbath than to fight and live and compromise on their convictions. They took this incredibly serious. Now, interestingly enough, something that kind of caught me off guard when I began to study this is that the Old Testament is remarkably vague about the Sabbath. The Old Testament is remarkably undetailed in regards to what the Sabbath was to look like. We know that the Sabbath, we are to, to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And we kind of have kind of a, a vague idea of what that is to look like. But as far as the details, like the day in, day out, what it looks like, what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. The Old Testament is remarkably quiet about the subject. But don't think for one second that the Pharisees didn't think they had it figured out. Don't think for one second that the Jews of Jesus' day didn't think they knew what it meant. Because you see, even though the Old Testament was vague, they had developed a very detailed rabbinic tradition that was based around 39 categories of cans and cants on the Sabbath so that they might make sure that they don't encroach upon, uh, upon working on the Sabbath or defiling the Sabbath in any way. And they went into incredible, incredible, even absurd detail. Just to give you some examples of, of some of what that would look like. 
On the Sabbath day, you could not travel more than 3,000 feet from your house. Now, you could. There was a couple of exceptions in there. If you had food that was away from your house, maybe in a barn that was within 3,000 feet, you could go to where the food was, and then you got like another 3,000 feet from there. Like kind of like bonus yardage, you know? Or if there was a, a place that from your house, and you tied a rope from your house to another building, you could go from wherever that building was, you could move out 3,000 feet. A, a Sabbath load could not be heavier than one dried, uh, one dried fig. Now, the exception was, is if you carry something that was half the weight of one dried fig, you could then carry, carry it twice. If you're a tailor, you couldn't walk around with a needle in case you saw something that needed to be mended and you mended it without thinking. Have any of you ever been guilty of a drive-by mending? You can understand their concern. If you were a woman, you're not allowed to look in the mirror out of fear that you will see a gray hair and you will pluck it out. That was work. If you were to go into a country now, if you were to go to Israel now, and you were to go on the Sabbath and you were to get on an elevator on the Sabbath, every single one of the buttons on a 40-floor 40, a 40 building is already going to be pushed, meaning you have to stop at floor 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, because it is, a, it is work to push the button on the Sabbath. They have their lights on timers on the Sabbath because they aren't allowed to light a candle on the Sabbath. So now, praise God for Bill Gates, they can have their lights on a timer and they're still well illuminated on the Sabbath today. But you can see that this rabbinic tradition was intense and difficult to follow. And yet, it was intended to supplement God's word in the beginning. And what we find by the time of Jesus is that it actually had begun to supplant the word of God. And take the place of the word of God. At least to be equal with the word of God. And so as they see Jesus' disciples coming through... They are convinced that these men are worthy of death. They are convinced that these men are living in egregious violation of the Sabbath. See, it was this kind of culture. It was this kind of thinking. It was this kind of rabbinic tradition. It was this, this kind of greenhouse that produced the soil that led to the Pharisees. You ever wonder, like, how did they come onto the scene? It was this kind of misunderstanding. It was this kind of, of, of overt legalism that led to the Pharisees. And Pharisees were legalists from the word go. Now, I want to be sure that you understand what I mean when I say the word legalist. A lot of people mean a lot of different things. Like, some people believe that if you just hold to the Bible as true, you're a legalist. What I mean when I say that a legalist, I mean that it's somebody who believes that they have to work by their own power, by their own wisdom to obtain God's favor. And this is what we see in the lives of the Pharisees. And what I want us to see this morning are four observations about legalists that we see here in the Pharisees. Now before I do that, I feel like a warning is necessary. 
Because I've come to understand that every time that I preach on legalism, there is at least a small contingency of people in the congregation that is doing an internal fist pump like, yes, get them, Cody, get them. Tell those traditionalists to go home. Get rid of the legalists in our church. If that is you, if that in your heart, then I warn you that you yourself are a legalist and need to listen up. Because you yourself are one that judges somebody by the outside and don't believe them to be as godly as you are. That little legalist that's inside of all of us, he's speaking particularly loud to you this morning. And so you need to put that to death as we open God's word together. Observation one, legalists misuse God's word. Legalists misuse God's word. This is something that you will always find to be true in the heart of a legalist, true in the heart of a person that wants to obtain God's favor, obtain God's mercy, obtain God's salvation by their own wisdom and by their own strength. Why do I, why do I say that? Well, you, again, you have Jesus' disciples and they're walking, they're walking through the field, right? They're walking through it and they're picking the grain. Now, why, what, what is the work that they have done in picking the grain? Well, you got to understand, again, according to the rabbinic tradition of that day, to, that it was against it to, to reap in any way. Well, in order to pick a head of grain and to eat it, you know what you have to do? You have to take it in your fingers and you have to husk it to get the grain out so that you can eat it. And they saw, they interpreted husking a piece of grain as reaping, thus being in violation of God's code. But what we see Jesus here pointing out to them is that they are upholding tradition at the expense of God's intention. They are upholding their rabbinic tradition, they're upholding their traditionalism and what's always been true and what they feel good about at the expense of what God meant by his word all the time. I know this because of what Jesus says. What does Jesus say to them? How does he rebuke them? Jesus looks at them and he says, in verse 3, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Now remember who, the, who the, uh, the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are the people that hold up their book and say, we live by the book. We live by the law. The law is what's important to us. And they saw themselves as being restorers of the law and upholders of the law, champions of the law. Nothing would have been more infuriating to a Pharisee than to look at him and ask him, have you never read the Bible? Have you never read God's word? Have you, are you not familiar with what God has said? Are you not familiar with God's law? And yet this is exactly how Jesus rebukes them. Jesus looks at them and he says, have you not read? He says, do you not remember David? Do you not remember David when, when David and all of his soldiers come home and they're battle weary and they're tired and they're exhausted and they're famished and they're hungry? Only the priest was supposed to eat the bread of presence. Only the priest was supposed to, to eat it, especially on the Sabbath. And yet David and his troops go in and the bread is given to them. And Jesus is asking them, have you not read? Like, like do you, does the scriptures condemn David for that? Does the, do the scriptures look down upon David for that? No. So who do you think you are? What about the priests? Even you believe that the priests are completely right in what they're doing. 
And yet the Sabbath is their most laborious day. They work harder on the Sabbath than they do any other day of the week. They offer two sacrifices on the Sabbath. Yet the Lord expects them to do these things. And you even approve of them doing these things. You see, they knew what God's word said, but they didn't know what God's word meant. And that is a fatal, fatal difference. It is fatal, the difference between knowing what God has said and knowing what God has meant. You see, if God has spoken, that's the first question. If God has spoken to us, and we believe that God has spoken to us, and we believe that God has given us a a book that that is sufficient, that is inerrant, that is authoritative, that is able to speak to us, that is relevant, then there is nothing more urgent than this. Nothing. Everything in your life boils down to this. Whether or not you should cheat on your taxes boils down to this. Whether or not you should have sex outside of marriage boils down to this. How you should raise your kids boils down to this. How you should use your money boils down to this. What do you believe about this book? Do you believe it to be the true word of God or not? But if you believe it to be true, if you believe this to be God's word, if you believe this to be God's self-revelation to you, And the second most important question that's almost right even with the first is what did God mean when he said it? What did God mean when he said it? What was God's intention in giving us the law of the Sabbath? What was God's intention in giving us all of the Levitical code? What was God's intention in giving us the Sermon on the Mount? What is God's intention in giving us the ethical code of Christianity? What is God's intention on unveiling the story about Jesus? What did God mean? How did God mean for me to understand it? How does God mean for me to apply it? How does God mean for me to live it out in my life? You see, when you read the Bible, you come with baggage. You realize that, right? You come with baggage just like the Pharisees do. You come with baggage that comes maybe from your faith tradition. You come with baggage from whatever denomination that you're associated with. You come with baggage of your own sin that you need to justify, your own sin that you need to forget. You come with the baggage of the guilt that you feel and the guilt that you carry. You come with the baggage of the way your dad treated you or didn't treat you. You come with with all kinds of baggage to God's word. And because of our sinful nature, all of that baggage comes and it begins to form a prism through through which we interpret it. But if we are going to know what God wants us to know, if we are going to be able to see God as God would have us to see, when we come to our Bibles, we must realize it is not about what we want, it is not about what we like, it is not about what we think, it is not even about what we need, it is about what did God mean? What did God mean? Remember, Mormonism was started by a man in a Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses began with people reading the Bible. Cults are began by reading the Bible. You can read the Bible, misunderstand it, and it's a fatal, fatal error. 
Guard yourself, brothers and sisters. Put down your baggage. Ask the Spirit to illuminate your mind that you can see the Bible. You can see its truth. You can see its doctrine as it really is. And if you believe everything about the Bible now exactly the same as you believed everything about the Bible last year, brothers and sisters, you're not maturing in the faith. You're not growing in the faith. Because you've got some, you've got some stuff off. You've got some stuff. You, you have misinterpreted God. And that's a sign that legalism is creeping into your heart. It's a sign that there's the Pharisee in you beginning to take over and grow and expand. No, come to the word of God and be changed by it. Don't misuse it. Understand what God meant and what God intended. Observation number two. Legalists cannot enjoy the good gifts of God. Legalists cannot enjoy the good gifts of God. What was the Sabbath? The Sabbath was a gift from God to his people. God, do you think that God rested on the seventh day because God was tired? You think God just worked for six days? By the way, when I say work, I mean like he spoke some words. You think God spoke some words for six days? Like, man, I have not spent any time watching football and chilling in the lazy boy. No, God was not tired. God is inexhaustible. God is omnipotent. God rested to set a pattern for us because we get tired and we get exhausted and we need rest. And so God was showing on the seventh day that he is a good God that considers our needs and gives us the gifts that we need to meet them. But what had the Pharisees done? What had the Pharisees of Jesus' day done? They had taken the good gift of God, the gift of rest no less, and they had made it utterly exhausting. They had taken the gift of rest and made it exhausting. Like, how in the world are you supposed to keep up with all of that? Can't you just imagine a tailor walking by with his hand whistling, you know, within 3,000 feet, of course, of his home. And he reaches in and all of a sudden he finds his mending packet. And, oh man, like, i got to get this out or I'm going to die. Like, I'm, gonna, I'm going to be executed because I have a, a mending needle in my pocket. It's exhausting. Can you imagine being on the elevator on the Sabbath having, and you're on the 40th floor and you've got to stop at 39 floors on the way up just because... You can't push a button. That's not in God's word anywhere. It's utterly exhausting. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he's talking in the, uh, I think the way we should see this text is an explanation in verses 1 through 8 and an illustration in verses 9 through 14, right? Like, so the man with the withered hand is kind of an illustration of the way God, of the way that Jesus is kind of unpacking this truth for them. But so, so he comes in and in verse 10 they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Which, by the way, is hilarious. Like, it's like they didn't think they would need to write a law about miracles. You know, like, who would think that there's going to be a man that can raise people from the dead on the Sabbath? Like, who thinks we need a law about that? And that's what I love about policy people. Like, some of you are policy people. And, like, eventually there's just not enough policy, right? Policy ties you in a knot at some point. Like, you just can't cover everything. And so, like, for, G for, for the Pharisees, they're looking at Jesus and they're like, this man allows blind people to see. Like, is that okay on the Sabbath? It doesn't feel okay to me, but, like, what? it's not in the rule book. 
But I love how Jesus responds to them. Because Jesus responds by asking, by essentially rephrasing the question in another way. Jesus essentially responds by looking back at them and saying, do you mean, is it okay to do good things that bring God glory on the Sabbath? Is that what you're asking me? Like, is it okay that dead people are become alive on the Sabbath that, to God's glory? You mean, is it, is it okay that a blind man can now see and is praising God? Is, is that okay? Is that what you're asking me? Is it okay that paralyzed people can now walk and go and tell people about who God is? Like, is, that, is, that, is that the question? You see, they had missed the good gift of God. They were not able to enjoy what God had given them to gladly enjoy to his glory and to his honor. Oh, church, how we do the same thing. Oh, church, how we take the good gifts of God and use them in a way that bring guilt, cycles of guilt, into our lives and into our church and into our families and into those Christians that are close to us. Let me tell you how this plays out for some of you. And if you're wondering how I know this so well, it's because I find it in my own life to be true. That's how I know this so well. You feel like you're guilt, you feel guilty because you haven't been praying, right? So what do you do? You said tomorrow morning. Never, never, it's never in the moment, is it? Like it's it's never right now I'm gonna turn off Hawaii 50 and talk to the Lord. So yes, tomorrow morning I will begin to pray. And so sure enough, you wake up at, you know, you normally wake up at 7, you wake up at 6.50. You, you scan through Facebook for just two minutes this morning, and you pray for maybe eight minutes. And you get to the end of that prayer, and you say amen, and what do you feel? You feel guilty. You feel guilty because then you think, well, man, that sure was rushed. I wasn't really even kind of completely coherent until like minute four. And like, surely that didn't bring God glory And so you resolve, I'm going to pray longer tomorrow. And so you wake up at 6 instead of 6.50, and you you set aside an hour for prayer. Man, you're going to seek God's face today. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you say amen, having prayed for an hour. And what do you feel? You feel guilty. Because you begin to think, man, I didn't even pray for one missionary like, who am I? I still haven't even prayed for our country yet. Like, like and then, then sin comes into your mind that you forgot to confess. And so you just, so you, so you feel even more guilty. So then you think, well, I'm going to just write it all down. I'm going to have to have a list. So you, so you go, and, you, and, and that night, man, you're, you're kind of ahead of the game because you're starting that night. And you, you write out your list. You write in your, uh, your, your sin confessional journal, journal now. And you, you, you write down all the sins that you need to confess. You've got all your materials. You wake up at, at 6 the next morning. You begin to go through your list. You, go, you offer the Lord your sin journal. And at the end of the day, what do you think? How in the world could I reduce God to a list? How could I reduce God to some names that I've written down? How could I make my prayer life about a checklist? You're in this cycle of guilt that just can't end. And you feel more guilty and more guilty and more guilty until ultimately you're so exasperated that you just quit. Or maybe this is you. Maybe maybe for you, you... You start feeling guilty because you realize you have so much and so many have so little. 
And so you decide, man, I am going to give generously to somebody. So you, so you, you find someone that you know is in need, and you give generously to them. Praise the Lord, right? You give generously to them. And for a moment, for a moment, like, you're smiling and you're happy. You got one of those big, goofy, like, smiles that your wife makes fun of you about, you know. And, and, but then all of a sudden, the thought comes into your mind, wait, wait a second. I'm not supposed to be doing this so I feel good about myself. And you're like, right? And, and you're like, the right hand's not supposed to be what the left hand is doing. And so you start feeling guilty because you started feeling good about what you'd done because you'd felt guilty. And so then you say, okay, well, I've got to try this over again. And so you, you give more. You give generously. You, you, almost, you even give more because you're like, Lord, I know that last gift was in complete vain. And so I'm going to give a little bit more that you'll, so that you'll forgive that one. And so you give even more generously the next time. And then you think, okay, praise the Lord. And you start focusing on Jesus. And then you begin to think, oh, and Jesus said that because of the good things that I have done, that I will get rewards and treasures in heaven. Oh, wait a second. I'm not supposed to do this so that I get something. I'm not supposed to do this so that I, so that I, I receive a treasure. You know what the problem with that is? Jesus said you're going to get a treasure. You know what the problem is about us not wanting to forgive, feel good about ourselves? It's like, should we not feel good about the things that heaven rejoices over? But what do we find ourselves in? We find ourselves in a cycle of guilt that we cannot break because we are dealing with the legalism that is in our hearts, the legalism that is in our souls, the legalism that was facing the Pharisees that day. See, all of that is built in this attitude that I must continually strive to God and strive to God. And I've got to keep working and working and working so that God will love me a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Brothers and sisters, Christ came so that you could rest from all of that. That's the rest of chapter 11. Christ came so that you could be set free. The Christian life is not about striving. It's about abiding and abiding in Christ. God did not give you his good gifts so that you would feel guilty. God gave you his good gifts so that you would be increased in worship. Worship. Enjoy them, brothers and sisters. Abide in Christ and praise God for the gift of prayer. Abide in Christ and praise God for the opportunity of generosity. Abide in Christ and praise God for the word that he has given and delight in it. It's not about reading it to get close, to, to earn his approval. It's about reading it because you already know him and you want to worship him more and go get nearer to him. Christ has already secured your position. Christ has already secured who you are in the eyes of the Father. Brothers and sisters, put to death the guilt in your life. Put to death the legalism in your life and abide in Christ. Observation number three, legalists don't value what God values. Legalists don't value what God values. So they come to him, and they've got their laws, right? They probably, in my mind, they're waving a, a, a law book, right? They're, they're waving the, the rabbinic scrolls, you know, and it's kind of a big piece of paper, so it's probably flapping in the wind, you know, like this. And what does Jesus say? He reminds them of the words of the prophet Hosea. Hosea 6, 6, he quotes it. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifices. That you, you've got your value system wrong. 
that you're focused on the behavior and I want the heart. You're focused on the letter of the law and I care just as much about the spirit of the law. You're focused on all of this other stuff and I just want you. I just want your heart. I just want you to give me your life and to love me and to pursue me. And out of that, all of the behavior stuff is going to take care of itself. I find it so true that so many of us are, feel like we are compelled to live out the letter of the law and we never get the spirit of the law. I find it so true in our lives that we think that what God wants in us is our behavior. This is exactly what he condemns the Pharisees for when he calls them a bunch of whitewashed tombs. He says you're spectacular on the outside but you're filled with dead bones. How often do we think that we can live according to what God's word says, that we can have this portrayal of, of piety and godliness on the outside, when on the inside we are filled with the same venom and sin that we are trying to rebuke everyone else from having. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is exactly what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you think it's good that you haven't murdered but you have hatred in your heart and you've committed murder in your heart. You think it's good that you've never physically committed adultery. But you have lust in your heart and so you have lusted and committed adultery in your heart. How do you know this, if this is you? How do you know if this is you? Are you the kind of person that tries to find loopholes in the law? Are you the kind of person that tries to find loopholes in the law? This is what Jesus is saying the Pharisees are doing. Again, in the illustration. In verse 11, he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? What's he saying? One way or the other, you're going to get your sheep out of the hole. If it's, a, if it's in accordance with the, with the Sabbath rules, great, that's awesome. We'll, we'll pull it out. If you need to manipulate those rules just a little bit so that you can take care of your livelihood... You're going to make sure you do that. One way or the other, you're going to find the loophole that you need to find to be able to get your sheep up out of the law, out of the hole. This is what we do. This is Christian teenagers that I have heard say that I can have oral sex as long as I don't have intercourse. This is Christian college students that take online classes and think, I can cheat as long as my reputation doesn't get tarnished. This is Christian husbands that say, I can look at pornography. I can have an emotional affair as long as I don't commit the physical act of adultery. You Pharisee! You Pharisee! Do you think that's what God wants? Do you think that's what God values? No, God wants your heart. God wants your heart. God wants all of it. He wants your affection. He wants your passion. He wants your love. He doesn't desire your sacrifices. You can slaughter all the animals you want to. You can pray at all the altars you want to come and pray at. But until you give God your heart, you are nothing but a Pharisee. God wants your heart, not your behavior. Are you looking for loopholes in the law? 
Are you looking for easy ways out? Repent this morning, brothers and sisters. Put to death the legalist that's in you. Finally, observation number four, legalists don't need Jesus. Legalists don't need Jesus. When I say that, I don't mean that they don't need his salvation and they don't need his forgiveness and they don't need his redemption. What I'm saying is, is that because they believe that they can win God's approval by their own strength and by their own wisdom and by their own brilliance, that they are in effect saying, Jesus, I don't need your cross. Jesus, I don't need your resurrection. Jesus, I don't need your righteousness. My righteousness will do just fine. Do you see why this is such an egregious sin against Christ? It is an egregious thing to look at Jesus, the one who came and dwelt among us, who put on flesh, who lived a perfect sinless life, who was forsaken on the cross and then raised from the dead on our behalf. It is an egregious thing to look at him and say, I'm good enough without you. Yet this is what a legalist says in his heart. He may not say it with his mouth. He may try to suppress it in his mind. But over and over and over, he keeps saying, I'm good enough. I will work hard enough. I will do enough right things. You know what Jesus says? I am the temple. I am the greater temple where God himself dwells. I am the Sabbath where you can come and find rest. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who established it in Genesis 1. And I am the one that offers it to you in 2016. I am the Sabbath. But Jesus didn't just stop there with the Pharisees that day. He showed them in verse 14. There's a man with a withered hand. They've wondered whether or not it's okay for Jesus to heal this man and to do this work. And how does Jesus heal him? Heal him? He does it by not doing any work at all. Jesus heals this man the same way that he created the Sabbath on the seventh day. He speaks. He says, reach out your hand. The man reaches out his hand and his hand is set free. This morning, brothers and sisters, come to Christ. Lay down your legalism and find rest. Come to Christ this morning. Come to the Lord of the Sabbath. Come to the temple, the place where God is fully made known in the incarnate Christ. Come to him and be set free. Stop carrying the burden of your own righteousness and instead be clothed in his. Come to Christ this morning and put down your guilt and instead take on his innocence upon you. Come this morning to Christ and stop striving to impress God with your life and instead just abide in him and fill your worship increase. This morning, brothers and sisters, come to the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for how often even those of us who love you Allow legalism to take over our lives. Forgive us for how often, God, we give you our behavior and we try to live out the letter of the law 
while completely forsaking the spirit of the law and never giving you our hearts. This morning, forgive us for our loopholes. Forgive us for how we misuse your word. Forgive us, God, and let us know again, afresh, anew, the rest that is offered to us in the Lord Jesus. Let us know the rest that is offered to us in a righteousness that is not our own righteousness. Let us rest in an effort that was not our own effort, a strength that is not our own strength. Let us abide in Christ this morning. We ask, Father, now that however you would move, you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, maybe your whole life, you've been trying to win God's approval. This morning, repent.